The Roots Running Sessions is an audio documentary of sorts about the post-collegiate training group, The Roots Running Project. I'm Richie Hansen, coach of The Roots Running Project, and if you like the content we're providing, please subscribe or write a review on SoundCloud or iTunes, and follow us on Instagram or Twitter at roots underscore running. Additionally, consider supporting our pursuits further by grabbing one of our gear items in our next pop-up sale or donating on our website at rootsrunning.org. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy. It's not like I had this like 100% certainty deep within my soul that I was going to be one of the best guys in the country. You know, like I didn't have that belief. I just thought I could make, I just thought I could get better. And I didn't know what better would be. And then all of a sudden you're coming to this realization that better is, is will maybe eventually bump up against the best. And it's like, are you ready for that? Are you ready for that commitment? All right. And now I've got Noah Drotti here with me. It was a little uncomfortable in the last hour just talking by myself. Yeah, I thought you were just just babbling like maniacally. Yeah, but it's, it kind it's, of was. It's good that you were actually like talking into a microphone. I think that makes it more acceptable. Yeah, and it probably was good that you weren't here for most of it because I was touting your praises, and so your confidence would have been through the roof. Oh, I am feeling very good right now. <laughs> bet, yeah. All right, so we're here about six days after the New York City Half Marathon, and we got a lot of. Questions regarding your progression, uh, how you've been able to kind of transition from where you were 18 months ago to where you're at currently, um, and people wanting wanting advice. I mean, people that find themselves in the same position that you were in a couple of years ago coming out of DePauw, and I think the biggest thing that I tried to highlight in the last hour was that how did we start seeing that shift in mindset of you coming from where you did to where you're at currently? And one of the things that I tried to emphasize was that it wasn't necessarily like one light bulb moment as much as it was growing confidence from everything that you were capable of hitting in workouts to what your progressions were in races. And so as we start this with you as a Q&A, before we dive into that aspect of it, the mindset shift, the decision to move out to Boulder, um, kind of recap the New York City half this past weekend, how the race went out, what your intent was going in, if you knew where you were at pace-wise, place-wise throughout the race. Yeah, um, I think I think our intent going in was to run with the just the lead group and kind of go for broke. That seemed to be kind of the rough, the rough game plan. Um, and so I was like mentally prepared to do that. And I think I estimated my fitness to be like around 62 minute shape. Like I thought that's what, that was like the best day. Um, so around 4:45 pace thought that'd be something I could do. You and, know. The, and the range I gave you was 440 to 445. Yeah. Um, I usually err on the, <laughs> yeah. on the conservative. At least, at, at least the start. <laughs> yeah. At least at the start, I err on the conservative side of that. So when the gun went off, it went out pretty hard, and we came to the mile right at 445. <clears throat> but it was pretty clear that the very front group of guys were they were going to try to do something pretty special, and they were they were pulling away from me pretty much immediately. So the game plan then had had to shift pretty dramatically to me just like holding pace, 
mostly on my own. I, I was still running with uh, with a couple other of the guys in the field through 5K, and we were kind of, you know, working with each other, just getting into the rhythm of the race, um, kind of rolling over some of those hills. But by about mile four, the game plan had totally shifted to me just, like, starting to realize that I was going to have to run pretty much the whole race alone because the leaders, the leaders were basically out of sight around the hills already. So Could I, you see them again when you got back on 7th Avenue? Not so much. I, I could see them, like, in the distance, and the lead vehicle had lights on it. So I could see where I was, like, more so in relation to the lead vehicle. But not – I couldn't see them well enough to really, like, be keying off of anybody. But there was definitely a moment in those first <clears> – <throat> after those first handful of miles where I was like, well, maybe I should slow down and let the, the, two, the two guys behind me catch up and, like, maybe it'd be better – if I was caught right now and the three of us could, could roll. Um, but then I kind of, I kind of slowed down and let one of those guys catch me. And I noticed he was breathing pretty heavily and I was like, okay, well now I have to make a decision. Cause I was definitely feeling like a lot of urgency, like early in the race that I haven't always felt before. I was like, if I'm going to run fast, like I have to be running fast now. And, and we, and we had emphasized that that four and a half mile point was kind of that key spot. Yeah, exactly. And so I found myself alone there, and I was just like, okay, well, you know, damn it to hell at this point. I just have to, like, I just have to go. And so then I just, like, settled in, really just mentally was focused on getting through the park. The race is, like, a 10K loop of the park, and then it's basically 11K, like, out in the city and on the roads. And so and mentally I was just like, just handle the first hilly 10K at its own tempo, and then when you get like out of the park that's a new race and like that's when I can really like turn it on a little bit and so I definitely got a huge like confidence booster when I realized I had survived the park because I knew that was like the hardest stretch um with the exception of like one pretty windy mile to come like you know I was I was definitely like catching and catching that that flow state and I always remember, remember Ryan Hall talking about like those rare moments where he would catch fire in races and he could feel it coming and then all of a sudden he could do like basically anything he wanted and I started like realizing I was like huh I'm catching fire right now like I'm putting time in the bank if I can just like keep myself calm and survive um like I got a pretty good time going and so that was basically my attitude the rest of the race was to keep pushing and once I got to like eight nine miles I started just focusing on running like each individual mile as its own thing until I got and I was like just like get to mile 11 and then run 10 minutes like really hard um, cause that's what I think in workouts a lot is just like one mile at a time. And then like, uh, then like a time interval, like, I was like, I know I can run 10 minutes hard. I can always run 10 minutes hard. Um, and then I did that and then I finished and it was pretty cool. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you're hurting the whole time, mm -hmm. but at what point did you feel like you really had to dig? Um, there's like a baseline of hurt in races that long that you're always going under, but Honestly, I felt so good like late in the race that I was I was wondering if I'd been running hard enough at all. But in the last couple miles, like my legs started uh, getting like pretty lactic, and just heavy, and like my calves were starting to cramp up a little bit. And so I knew like physically I was starting to hit a wall. But I was like so fired up just knowing how fast that I had been running that I almost like that carried me through the rest of the race, just knowing that I had a good one going um i was pretty spent afterwards but i think in the moment i felt like that was by far the strongest last 5k i've had in a half marathon um by far like i usually get to mile 10 and just feel like i'm just hanging on to the pace but here i felt like i hit mile 10 and 
I don't know if I really ran that much faster, but I at least was like able to maintain urgency. So yeah, I didn't get to that place of like ultimate hurt that, that I have in some of my like less impressive races, I guess. And one of the things I tried to emphasize before is we had a pretty good read on kind of where your fitness was in your previous two races, Houston half and big Sur half, Mm -hmm. but the conditions on the day weren't affording you the opportunity to run those times. And so you race the competition on those days relative to the performance of what your pace should have been. This was good conditions for the day. It was maybe a little cold, but it, you guys had favorable conditions once out on the course. And so you were able to kind of, like you said, let it rip once you hit seventh Avenue to be able to rip off miles Kind of talk about that a little bit. Like on paper, it looks like your performance is a drastic increase from where you ran back in Houston. But if we're realistic, we thought you were in 63 mid shape at Big Sur. We thought you were in 62 mid shape at Houston. And here, the potential to break 60, uh, 62. Yeah. I mean, sometimes races hide, hide fitness. And so, like in Houston, I think most people would agree that about a minute. You know, can come off those times. So I let's see, I ran sixty three twenty two. Take a minute off that. That's sixty two twenty two. Like sixty two twenty to to sixty one fifty is still a not, jump, but it's not like a ninety not second drastic, jump. Yeah. And so it, you know, like, and we knew I was fitter now with six more weeks of training. I came off Houston well, so it wasn't anything. Like it, it's always mind blowing to to run what you think you're capable of and what you envision yourself capable of on your best day. But, like, we got the conditions to actually put that time down. Um, And that just hasn't happened. Um, And sometimes it doesn't click for someone like that in a long time. So when you recognize an opportunity like that, it's a a big one to take advantage of. Yeah, you got to take advantage of the conditions because we're finding that that's more – the ideal conditions are more of a rare thing than – than a commonplace when you get into especially those longer races yeah. subtle changes in wind pattern can make a big difference and then we live in a sport where there's like kind of an arbitrary value assigned to road times and mm-hmm. so you know a, a half marathon is a half marathon time no matter where you run it and under what conditions and so you kind of have to you know wait for the, that ideal condition to put out a really impressive time and i think one of the things that stuck <laughs> with me after your big sur performance was the conditions weren't there. You guys had a headwind the last half. It was hillier than we what we anticipated. But like you said, it was an honest race. Mm-hmm. And it was it was a true race in the sense that like people all took their turns at the front. You just didn't have enough to hang on at the end. Um, but it was decent guys that you had to run with. Yeah, and so the times weren't like super exciting, but I mean if any if there like if there's a decent live stream, you know, like people would have been treated to like to like a really good race and I think I'm just as comfortable walking away from like a really good race as I am like a really fast time but it's not like you need the fast time to create more opportunities for yourself so it's just like nice to check that box when I was talking in the last portion of this this podcast one of the things I emphasized when we were looking at your potential when you first contacted us was that in your collegiate races, even though the times weren't necessarily something to write home about, you competed well in all of those and placed pretty well. How do you feel like that experience competing, although different level of competition than what you're currently competing on, gave you good experience to be able to compete with the guys that you are now? I mean, I think it's all the same. I think competition is, is all the same no matter what level you're racing at. 
Or just you always want to bump up on levels, and to do, to do that, you have to be you have to be fitter. But like the way I approached, you know, my conference meet 10k is like essentially the same way that you approach any other race because. I'm not a clear favorite in the races I'm in I'm in now and I really wasn't a clear favorite when I was racing those. So it was just about like trying to put myself in a position and like run passionately and beat like as many people as I could even if my my fitness level wasn't necessarily up to theirs. Um but but now I'm just I'm just doing the same thing. I've we've just been lucky enough that I keep jumping into like the next pond a little bit. Um and a lot of your a lot of your <clears throat> tempos, longer workouts up here have been relatively solo, yeah. and so I think that's something too that when you're when you're in the position that you were at at New York Half, like that's not an unfamiliar position for you either. Yeah, no, it was on it was honestly fine. Like I can I can zone in pretty pretty well when I'm on my own. Like I think there I think there's a huge benefit to running in a group, but. Especially on that day, like I was able to just, uh, I was able to continually push myself just because I started to realize what I was doing. And so that, so that was like, that was motivation enough just to like come through five miles and see the time. And it just like, okay, this is ha- this is happening. Like this moment that I have been envisioning and training for all these weeks that that moment you like kind of let yourself dream about, but you don't really tell anyone about because it's great. It's crazy. But I was like, it's happening right now. You know, it's like I'm not going to waste it by like slowing down. So, so that's equally as motivational to me as like running and competing in a group. It just varies. The situation varies depending on what race you're in. In Houston and at Big Sur, I was in the group the whole time and I was competing with the guys. Time kind of went out the window in both of those races to some extent. But here it was like I felt like I was really racing against like the best version of myself. And it, you had a kind of a glimpse of that at the 10-mile champs where you took the lead and were trying to push the pace. In that context, you're trying to run away from people. Mm-hmm. This context, you're trying to pick up seconds. Yeah. And I felt like I, – I still felt like I was trying to run away from people because, I mean, there were a good handful of Olympians behind yeah. me. And, like, there's a couple of U-turns where you can you can see the guys. And, and everyone looks closer on a U-turn because you forget that you already came around the U. And so you, you see them on the other side and you're like, oh, shit, they're going to be – right there They're coming yeah and um so anyway like there there was still the urgency of knowing because you can never count out guys like diego like he finished pretty close to me because i died a little bit in the last in the last four but like yeah you can never those guys are still pushing themselves and you know you want to finish as high up as possible i really didn't know what spot i was in but i figured i was probably running pretty well how have your expectations kind of shifted over the past 18 months from when you first moved out here to now as we enter track season in terms of what standards you're kind of shooting for. You've already auto-qualified for the U.S. championships this year. Yeah. But now our time goals have shifted. Yeah. I mean, well, when I moved out here, I didn't have any time goals. And I it had been since college, right? Since yeah. you'd run track. And so the real... The, I don't know what the goal was moving here. <laughs> like, like, I don't know what it was. Like, where we are now is so radically different, it's hard to even compare the two. You know, it's not like when I moved out here, we were like, okay, well, we're going to hit the USA standard, and then we're going to break 62 and a half, and then we're going to and then we're gonna try to run the world standard in the 10K after we run the Olympic trials. Like, those conversations weren't even on the radar back then. And so back then, it was really just like, can we train consistently, and can we get better? And then there were, like, you know, just some, like, personal goals I had, like, break 14 in the 5K, you know, check, um, you know, break 65 and a half. We did that. 
and but now it's like you're you're held to a little bit more like objective standards where it's like oh you want to run USAs you probably have to run this time now and so those your goals are almost like dictated for you at that point it's like you want to you want the world like you want the opportunity to go to worlds you have to run 2745 or whatever it is i think that's what it is so those goals become your goals in a way that they didn't when I just moved out here because they were so far in the stratosphere it wasn't even worth talking about. And as we've mentioned in the past, you bought tickets to go to the Olympic trials because you didn't think you had the potential to be there. Now you find yourself where you're already auto-qualified for it. Those expectations shift in yeah. terms of not just getting there, but what do you do with that opportunity once you're there? Yeah, and I think that's been like a pretty radical part of like the last 18 months is just like coping with that shift because it... I mean, it sounds really cool, but it's also, like, very, it can be very stressful and intimidating and, like, scary, <laughs> you know, yeah. to, to realize you're making, to realize you're making those shifts, and all of a sudden it's like, it's like, oh, God, I am supposed to be competing with the best guys in the country, like, am I ready for that responsibility, you know, whereas before, I never, I was like, oh, I'll keep showing up to these road races and, like, doing whatever, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but I think, I think, I think one thing... Like you're, what you're emphasizing right now of, am I ready for that responsibility of competing against those guys? When you first moved out here, that wasn't the expectation, that you're not yeah. going to compete against a Galen Rupp. It's, yeah. we need to work your way up to that. Yeah. Do you have that potential? It depends on like what your progression looks yeah. like. But we had no idea if I yeah. had that potential. I, I, it's not like I had this like 100% certainty deep within my soul that I was going to be one of the best guys in the country. You know, like, I didn't have that belief. I just thought I could make, I just thought I could get better. And I didn't know what better would be. And then all of a sudden you're coming to this realization that better is, is, will maybe eventually bump up against the best. And it's like, are you ready for that? Are you ready for that commitment? You know, and that's been like an evolution in my thought process. Yeah. And you and I have both kind of touched on like the disaster that was the Olympic track trials. And well, part of it was fun. Well, yeah, I mean, be, being there is fun. The performance itself, yeah, from it was, both our standpoints, was, was not the most enjoyable. It was a disaster. However, that's probably still such an important step in what your growth and development from a mindset, a oh, comp yeah. competition. You needed to go through some of those trials to be able to put yourself on a platform trials. that you currently are. Trials. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's very true. Um, like, I, I've, I've had a couple... Really, just two like total blowups. Which one was the trials, and the second was Boulder Boulder. But I like which Boulder Boulder was a big deal for me too. I've definitely learned a lot from those from those races. Um, you know, as much as I've learned from from the good ones, like I think everyone who's had success will tell you that they've learned as much or more from their failures. But um, but yeah, going through those failures like just taught me like the ropes of competition like that and meets like that and just environments like that. And so the next time I met like at New York, I wasn't like starstruck at all. You You'd know? seen a lot of those guys. I know the, I know the guys now, yeah. you know? And so it's like, I could, I could walk around the, you know, elite athlete room without being like, Oh, Chris Derrick. Yeah. You did strides with Jared Ward. <laughs> yeah. I did strides with Jared Ward. So it's like just allowing yourself that idea that, hey, maybe you belong here on a good day. Um, it, it's honestly just, like, way more relaxing. What What was it that kind of spurred the decision for you to not just continue to train and compete in Indiana, but to actually relocate, make the move, considering the marks that you had run up to that point? Yeah. What, what was that light bulb? I'm going to open a beer first. Yeah. Okay. 
Sweet. Power of editing. You can edit that out if you want. <laughs> or don't. Hey, keep it in. Yeah, keep it in. Everyone will think I'm real cool. Um, what was the question? Why did I move out here? Like, or what made me what, believe? Yeah, I could think like, of, I kind of touched on... You, so you were vegan for... I was a vegetarian. You, okay, so... But that had nothing to do with moving out here. No, but, like, <laughs> here was my point. Was... Yeah. You had decent success at the D3 level. You had an opportunity right out of college to go to a post-collegiate group, correct? Um, in, in Locally. I had a D2 offer right out of college, which I don't even know if I told Well, not you D2, but, but like but the there training was, there was, Yeah, there was a training group, but that was like... Yeah, I guess that was actually pretty close to after I graduated. It was and, probably six months after. And I didn't dive too much into that, but it wasn't the most positive experience. And so you were kind of a little bit dejected with the sport at that time. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like a super negative experience. Like, one, I probably wasn't prepared for it. Two... Like the infrastructure really wasn't there, and the passion maybe wasn't already there. But yeah, and you it, got hurt, and I got hurt. Yeah, I got hurt like pretty much immediately, and then it was just like it was just like okay, well maybe that maybe that was me giving it a go. Like maybe that was me trying. Maybe that was the last chapter, and I can always like be at peace with the fact that I tried a little bit, you know, and now I can kind of do other things. Um, yeah, I think that's where my head was at that point. Like, I was like, okay, you know, gave it a shot. You know, this is an injury that I don't see ending anytime soon, really. Um, I can kind of ride off into the sunset a little bit and run when I want to and and stuff like that. So, as far as, like, what shifted in me getting from that point to the point where I moved to Boulder, I think I was just, like, kind of unhappy in my in my daily life back home. Not, I mean, I, I love where I'm from and I like love my friends and family and everything was good, but I just wasn't like feeling, feeling super like fulfilled just as a, as like a human being, like there was nothing really going on. Maybe that was the problem that there was nothing really going on. Um, and so I just kind of figured, and I was, I was talking about this earlier and I think I've talked about it before, but I was just kind of feeling like I needed to, to like make a, a jump and it's like, what, what can I use as, like, the vehicle to get me there? And, like, running was the thing that I was like, you know, maybe I have some untapped potential here. If I can go here somewhere and run, like, that'll give me a purpose. That'll give me, like, an end to a community. I can work. Like, I can just, like, kind of start uh, a life, like, a new life somewhere different, you know? that. And you had come to Boulder before. I'd been to Boulder before, but honestly, like, Boulder wasn't the selling point. Like, I would have, yeah. I think we've talked about that. I would pretty much have gone anywhere. Yeah. It was more of, like, looking for the opportunity, so I wasn't moving somewhere totally... Foreign. Yeah, foreign and blind, and Boulder just happened to be that opportunity, and it happened to be in the direction that I was hoping to head, so... Yeah. Um, maybe not as far as in the direction I was hoping to head, but Boulder was far enough west, and so... I just kind of did it, because I felt like there wasn't a good reason not to. One of the uh, things that I mentioned too in the previous previous uh, part of this podcast was that normally when an athlete contacts us, we send them a running survey and they kind of detail what their previous running past was like. You sent us like your job interview, like your job resume, yeah, and like a cover letter. I was getting used to sending them out at that point. I've been sending <laughs> a lot of groups. I was like, I suck at running. I better like make this look good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a portion of that cover letter real quick. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. It says, I'm submitting this application to Roots Running with both a tremendous amount of enthusiasm and humility. Enthusiasm because of my love for the sport of distance running as a whole and the opportunity to train with like-minded athletes. Humility because I understand that on paper, my personal bests do not quite measure up. 
You continue by saying, I am realistic in what my abilities are, but I sincerely believe that most of my talent is yet underdeveloped and given a conducive training environment, my fitness would increase dramatically. I'm a pretty good writer. And you're pretty, you're pretty <laughs> like self-aware. Yeah. And that was one of my points before too, is that it's not, it's not just times on paper when you're evaluating an athlete. You can take a good, talented Division One athlete. You could take an underdeveloped Division Three athlete, and there's still not a predictor for who's going to improve and who's not. Division Three, Division Two athletes listening to this could be underdeveloped, and they may view themselves as being the next Noah Dravi. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be. And a very, very talented Division One athlete could think they're going to be the next Galen Rupp, but that doesn't mean they're going to be. So it takes a complete program for one, but the mental side and the ability to compartmentalize where their, currently abili- their current ability is and what it's going to take to improve is kind of a key concept. So with you, you are a very stoic, self-reflective figure and running is not an all-consuming part of your life, although you compartmentalize it very well within the context of what your daily life is. And so kind of... Kind of talk about like you were you were in Indiana, you were training, you were racing locally, but now you're moving to an area, and so that commitment has to grow. You you loved running, which is what sparked that initial movement, but how you had to structure yourself in order to see that consistent improvement as well. Yeah, I mean, I think when when I made the move, I was also like recognizing that running would be like the number one priority in my life didn't have to be like the only priority in my life, but it was going to shift from priority number three or four to priority number one. And, and so like part of that was just making the move. <laughs> like that, like that was, step one. Yeah. Step one check. But then, you know, once you're, once you're here, you have to set up your life in a way to reflect that commitment. I think I, I think I did that pretty well. And I think a lot of it was on accident or like a lot of it was just like good things happening to me and like good people coming into my life. Like I found great roommates, you know, who were athletes. I found a great job with a boss who was an elite athlete and understands and gave me the flexibility in my work schedule to accommodate training. And he pays me fairly, you know, I like, you know, and just having the group to, to, and being like dedicated to four practices a week at, at the same time, essentially every day, you know, these are all things that were not in my training before I was working too much. I was staying out too late. I was hanging out with friends all the time. Like I was doing stuff that a runner doesn't do, you know, and my work, like even running, I never ran at the same time every day. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd come home from work at eight. I'd run at 9 PM. I'd run at 4 PM on my days off. It was kind of all over the place. And so, like, just allowing that structure to become, like, a little more solidified and just, like, living a lifestyle where I can take a nap in the afternoon before I go to work after a session. And I'm being more conscious about, like, making almost all my own food instead of, like, hitting rallies at midnight three nights. I used to eat at rallies, like... Do you know where rallies is? It's yeah, like, it's I know. Like, but it's like a fast food place. Yep. I used to go there like two or three times a week and yep. get just like ridiculous stuff. So it's just like all these things kind of float into it a little bit. 
Well, and I think that's that's an important... Shout out to rallies. If you're interested in talking... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Noah, Noah is looking. <laughs> but at the same time... Give me time, an email. <laughs> I think what that kind of highlights, though, too, is like a little bit of luck, right? Because like... So much luck. Because yeah. when you even look back at your running career, I, I kind of highlighted some of your high school PRs. And it wasn't... It wasn't running wasn't the mainstay of where you went to college or why you went to college. It was because I, I, I emphasize that you, you grew up in a low income blue collar area of Indiana. You had good academic grades that gave you a scholarship to a very good high school. You got good grades there. that gave you a scholarship to an Indiana school. And had it not been for that, you probably end up at Indiana university and probably aren't running no. because it, Definitely not running. You know, like yeah. it's some of that is chance. You you had you had a big part in that chance and luck because you had good academic standing that al- allowed you the ability to get those scholarships. But through that, it's like you had a good high school coach. What, what was it? Your senior year or junior year and senior year? Junior, like second, like junior track and then full senior and that's really what grew that kind of like interest in the sport oh yeah i mean he's the only like i still remember the day where like they were like so you think about running college it's like no i'm not thinking about running college like what are you serious (laughs) and then uh i ended up running for the school they graduated from they were DePaul alums and so just these like subtle influences in my life that i never planned or like asked for or sought out have just like guided my life into a trajectory that I couldn't have taken it like in in a, in a really good place that I would never have gotten it if I had been allowed to hold the reins entirely, you know. And I was kind of I was like drinking at the at the at LaGuardia at this horrible bar when I was leaving <laughs> leaving New York. You had to order. Let's let's retract. There is no horrible bar. There is just uh, <laughs> dirtier bars and cleaner bars. Oh, the waiters were wearing ties, and you ordered drinks on an iPad. Yeah. I wanted to bash my head into it. <laughs> But I was just sitting there and I was like writing in my journal a little bit and I was just like kind of overcome with emotion just being like, I'm not really responsible for, for any of this. Like I ran fast, like I ran fast like for an hour in New York, but but really my life has been just kind of a life raft floating in, in this ocean and I've gotten favorable currents, you know, and so that's not lost on me. If you were if you were a D one talented athlete coming out and you were a D three athlete like you were, what advice would you give when it comes to trying to seek an appropriate training environment? Like post collegiately? Post collegiately. And that's one question that we got consistently. Yeah, I mean that's like a question I can answer now with the benefit of like having been in that like experience. A, yeah, but it's not a question I could have answered when I was reaching out to people. You know, because I, like we've said, like I was pretty much ready to jump on the first ship that was leaving. Um, so, God, it's like, I mean, I guess I would tell people to look for exactly what I have now, you know, yeah. but that's going to be something different for everybody. That doesn't, that doesn't mean like our group is like the only place to go. Yeah. It, and I think not to highlight it, but one thing I did say was that we are a complete program, like me by chance you as an undeveloped athlete came to a coach that first got experience developing athletes and having a background in healthcare and strength and conditioning like that's complete circumstantial too yeah i mean part of it is obviously like you being very invested as a coach us like building this environment of like hungry hungry post collegiates um 
like that's definitely part of it and part of it another big thing is like you are my opposite in a lot of ways um and so i think when we we work together well because we approach <laughs> we we approach things really differently sometimes like in a lot of ways we're similar but it, and also like a lot of big training ways i think we're very different well i think emotionally we're very similar in the sense that like we don't get angry we don't yell we don't it's not like you and I have ever had a blow up where we're really like yelling at each other. No, but sometimes like I'll go more based on feeling, and you'll and bring I'm me more analytical, and you'll bring me back down with like facts. Yeah, you and your facts. I know you science. Know? <laughs> <laughs> Can be a liar. Am I supposed to be sit here believing facts? You yeah. know, it's like it's fake news, people. Fake news. Yeah. But but yeah, in a lot of ways, like you know, or maybe. Maybe I don't feel like I'm capable of doing something. You're like, well, actually, you, you should be capable of doing this because you did this, this, and this. And maybe you're tired because of this. Whereas sometimes my mind would just go, you know, and I and I have you to, like, crank me down. And I feel like sometimes I can talk you out of, like, analytical stances just with, like, you know, this is, like, this is how I'm feeling. <laughs> you know, not just, like, not just physically but emotionally and I can bring you to a point where it's like okay yeah maybe we need to rest a little bit so it kind of goes both ways which I think is like a good collaborative effort well and I think that's if we're talking to coaches back home like you're in a position of authoritative power where you're writing the workouts you're directing a workout but it's also not one that you should consistently dig your heels in mm -hmm. like it like he's saying it's a collaborative effort it's it's really being able to listen and know when when it's an appropriate time to say, no, this is how we have to do it, or I understand and we can shift it. Yeah. And I mean, that's not to say that we're constantly changing workouts. We very rarely change yeah, workouts. Yeah, we hardly ever change workouts. We trust, we trust the way yeah. that the workouts are laid out and that you're going to get the most out of it, but we can reflect on why things didn't go necessarily the way that we intended them to or why things went better than we intended them to and move forward accordingly. Yeah, and I think another big part of it is just trust. Like, I trust you to get me where I want to be, and, like, that's been not, not, like, a huge evolving process, but there's definitely been times where, like, you know, I've been blowing up the week before big races, and I'm just like, okay, this is impossible. Like, there's no way that I'm going to get to a place where I need to be. And then you're like questioning the training and all it takes is like one or two of those times to be like, cause then I would show up and run well, um, is like the ending of to that story. And so it's like, okay, this is a process. I just need to get through it, you know? And so like part of that is just us being, have, you have to be together for a while to like figure these things out and you have to go through these things to actually learn what's supposed to happen. So, like, I trust you to get me to start lines, and I think you trust me to, like, maximize those opportunities. And, you know, I haven't maximized every opportunity, but I think I've maximized some of them. <laughs> you've taken, well, you've taken advantage <laughs> yeah. of most opportunities, yeah. and I think that's something, too, that if you do find yourself on a starting line against good competition, be honest with where your fitness is. This isn't just directed at you, obviously. Yeah, this yeah. is directed at everybody. Be honest with where your fitness is. Be confident in where that fitness is. Don't start questioning on the day that your fitness indicates like run five minute pace for X time and now you're running 510 because you're worried you're going to blow up. <laughs> it's over. Like, it's over. But take advantage of those opportunities when the conditions afford themselves to be able to run what your fitness indicates. Mm -hmm. Now, let's go through a couple of the Q&A type stuff that people asked, especially directed at you. Some of this we already, we already um, – 
touched on, but I'll ask you them. I'll ask you those questions regardless. First one is advice to a serious post-collegiate runner who has no chance of going pro. Well, I mean, I was a, I was a serious post-collegiate runner, well, like a mostly serious post-collegiate runner with no chance of going pro. Yep, that's so, why I think it's a good question. <laughs> yeah, so, um, and we can, we can argue about what professional really means, but that's yeah. not, that's not what the question is Different about. Different podcast. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, advice, I mean, is it just like, I, 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 I feel my, like, well, and let me clear my advice to them was find a good training situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, that's good concrete advice. I guess what I would say is if, if you know that you have to be a runner, like your decision is pretty much your decision is already made. So I think a lot of people are struggling like, well, do I pursue this? Like, that's the question. Do I per, like, do I pursue this? Is it worth pursuing? And really like, if you feel like you have to, like your the answer to your question is there. And then you can get into the nuts and bolts of the training system and stuff like that. Yeah, being in the right training environment is, is you know, 95% of the battle, you know. But first you have to recognize if that, like, if that desire actually, like, lives within your soul or not. Not to get too, like, deep Emotional. with it. Yeah, but it's, like, because you don't have a choice then. And then you can proceed. And so I guess my first piece of advice is to, like, look within yourself and ask, like, is this something you really want to do? You know, because it's not a lot of, it's not for everyone. Someone else asked, when did it mentally click that you could hang with some of the best? And like, my point was, I don't know if it ever mentally clicked that you could hang with the best. It was just like, you progressed up to that point of you, you beat a couple good guys and then you beat a few more good guys and you kept improving to that. Yeah. And then you just start thinking, okay, on my best day. If this person doesn't have a great day, it's realistic for me to compete with them. And that's been like, that's been an evolution. I don't know. Like, I like to go to every start line with and I with some glimmer of hope that I can be competitive with the field. And um, not, you know, honest with yourself, but also, also like, you know, fired up to compete. Um, so, but I, I mean, I, honestly, I would say it's just now clicking that like on my best day, I am one of the best guys in the country over certain distances. Well, I mean, I think you proved that with the half marathon time already. Like, it's it's great. We didn't know 61.48, 61.45 would have ranked you top 30 in the U.S. of all time. Yeah. Like, that's crazy to think about. But even, like, going back to the 10-mile championships, like, mm -hmm. I beat a lot of good guys then. I took a former NCAA champion to the line. Like, I'm beating, like, full-time sponsored runners and so when you start doing that, it's like, well, the writing's on the wall. It's like, you know, you can compete with these guys and you should be competing with these guys. Granted, there's like a whole nother, every time you jump into a bigger pond, it's like there's another pond waiting. And so it's like once you start being confident in your ability to race domestic competition, then you're looking at international competition. You know, I, I ran well in New York, but I still lost the race by almost two minutes. Yeah. You know, and so it's not like this is the jump, but this this isn't like... Still got to be better. Yeah, still exactly. It's like you still got to be better. So, like, it's starting to click that I can compete with good runners. Um, but that never ends. Like, there, you're always like, like Mo Farah is maybe sitting at home, like, just like you know, like who if can I had a mustache. who can compete with me? You yeah. know, and but I'm over here just like I'm just trying to like finish competitively in fields. And so part of that is putting the times down. And then, like, once you have the times down, it's like then you're just one of the big dogs and you're starting to race for wins. And I'm like, not in the spot where I'm racing for wins and a spot in a 
race like New York yet, like that's the ultimate jump. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's like I mean, it's a lot of clicks. It's not one click. <laughs> it's like a series of clicks. Well, and it's funny too. One of the questions I got, like when we dive back and how you and I a lot of times are on the same page. Like I think I progress as a coach as you end up as an athlete, both in our mental confidence of what you're capable of but also in terms of like what the plan should be moving forward in terms of racing. Like we always have that long-term projection in mind of like Mm -hmm. what competitions we foresee. Like we have potential racing outlines of like what races you should do over the next three years going into trials, you know? And like one of the questions that was asked online was why so many half marathons over the past two years? And my point was, well, we eventually know you're going to be a marathon runner. Your volume's pretty low. So how do we progress your volume plus progress you to the ability to handle that marathon distance well? And I think people just like freaked out when they saw you post that progression because there were were seven half marathons there, but they're separated by years, Yep. you know, and granted my last, my last three races have been three half marathons. Am I missing something? Yeah. In the past six months. Yeah. But it's like, you know, we have six to eight weeks between each of them. Like I have time to like, and you're not racing in between those. I'm not racing in between those. We're training hard, but I'm not racing in between those. So yeah, for people who are freaking out about all the halves, like I don't think I don't think eight weeks between half marathons is is cutting it too close. And like like you you could probably attest to this, but you've been sore this week. Mm-hmm. But based on the number of workouts that you guys do consistently, like it's not unexpected that you should be able to recover from that and then get back into training relatively quickly. Yeah, you and I are both on, like you showed up at the workout today. We had one thing on paper, and we're like, no, let's like. scale it back a little bit just to give you a little bit more time like we are both pretty in tune with each other of what what you need in order to keep yourself healthy but also to optimize the training weeks that we have before the next competition yeah so yeah it's an evolving process but yeah i'm not worried about the number of half marathons and now we're switching to track and so it We'll get a different stimulus, like racing stimulus. And like you emphasize after after uh, you finish the half, you turned to me and said, I don't have to race another half marathon for a while, do I? Yeah. Like, no, we don't have one on the schedule for at least a year. Yeah, it's like, okay, just, you know, we we, we pushed and pushed and pushed. We got the time we wanted. Let's chill out. Scale like, it back. Like, we'll close this chapter and we'll come back. Um, so a couple of, like, fun questions before we end this interview. Um, interview discussion conversation. Um, what are your thoughts on, and this, these are questions that were posed on social media. What are your thoughts on the Nike Superflies? Yeah. Uh, we kind of talked, I think I gave you my spiel about this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the shoes. Okay. So let's talk about the advantages that the shoes like theater theoretically give against a guy like me. And so this is how I kind of broke it down for you the other day. Like if someone were to come up and it's just like, so I'm standing, so I guess in New York, I'm standing next to Chris Derrick. Um, big fan of Chris Derrick, so don't interpret any of this. It's just like shade. Yeah, he's a good but, guy. Yeah, he's a great dude. Chris Derrick is standing there next to me on the start line with uh, with the, the vapor flies on. Like, he's got the shoes on. So am I worried that Chris Derrick is going to beat me just because he has those shoes? Um, really, no. Like, there, there's a few things in my mind as an athlete that give him an advantage, a bigger advantage than those shoes. Um, so, like, Chris Derrick has been an elite runner for 10 years. He is fully funded, meaning he, like, doesn't have to go to work. Um, so these are all, these are all like, real advantages that Chris Derrick has over me. His shoes are, like, the, the least of my concern, to be honest. 
I don't view the shoes as like an immediate threat to me in that competition. But let's imagine a world where we can like scientifically measure, and I don't think this will ever happen, but that like me and Chris Derrick step on the line at the exact equivalent of fitness, and we are about to put forth the exact same effort into the exact same conditions. Like we should theoretically, if we have the same gear, run the exact same time. But let's say he beats me in that race because he just has different shoes. Does that make me uncomfortable? That, that scenario makes me a little uncomfortable. That under the exact same scenario, someone would beat someone else just because they have those shoes. Is that something that I think we can really measure exactly? No. Well, and I think, too, one thing you and I, when we were discussing this, I think we were on your pre-race run. And when we were kind of talking about it, it was like, you still have to improve yourself before you're even on that international level of competition yeah. to even warrant that as a possibility. Yeah, the shoes are going to be like the ultimate marginal gain. 4%, I don't buy that. You know, like that's a lot for a shoe. But like theoretically, if it does increase performance by 4% every time you put them on, like 4% is a hell of a lot. And that would make me uncomfortable if, if everyone who put on those shoes got like this free advantage but at the same time it's like how do you dot how do you decide in running gear what is legal and what is not like can you use carbon plates can you use cushioning this thick you know it's like we are headed down a rabbit hole with this stuff at the end of the day the shoes are a marketing gimmick that's what they are they're trying to sell shoes one of your former teammates shout out to Stu, oh, hey, Stu. asked do he's you gonna ever be, he's gonna be stoked that you just said his name on the podcast yeah uh noah Drotti, super fan <laughs> Super friend. Super friend and super fan. <laughs> Asked, do you ever remember the DePaul preseason time trial from 2010? I do. I remember it. I remember it vividly. What happened in that 2010 time trial? Well, I'm guessing I, Stu beat Stu you. would love to tell the story himself. Um, so we did, we did it like our first week on campus. We'd always do a two-mile time trial on the track before cross-country season just to get a baseline on like where everyone was. Like, have you guys been training over the summer? And so I think I finished, like, eighth on the team with, like, a 10.37. And Stu was a freshman, like, a super freshman. And he, he either, like, he was, like, I don't know where he finished. Maybe one. Top three, at least. Like, it was him and another freshman on the team that just, like, destroyed us. And I was, like, you know, 300 meters behind. And really, for, I was coming off an injury or something. But he's So on. here I am bragging about your underdeveloped nature and how you didn't have anyone to run with. Yeah, at I, the at the I should have been trial. talking to the number one time you, trial guy. You should have been talking to Stu all along. Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> but I rallied, and by the end of the season, I was running pretty well. Is that why you wanted to do the time trial back in September? Well, yeah. No, I think I even, yeah, the two-mile time you trial. You emphasize me, that. Yeah, it's like that's, because that was always a key to me was, and we do it at, again at the end of the season, most years. And so, like. Uh, I think my senior year I ran like 9.45 or something at the beginning, but then I came back at the end of the year and ran 8.50. Um, and I was just like... Oh. And that was your best, right? And that was my best um, until we did our time trial. But I was just like, okay, 8.50. <sighs> you know, because you could see in very concrete numbers, same condi- essentially same conditions, eight laps on the track. I went from 9.45 to 8.50, or I went from 10.30 to 9.50. Um, and the reason we did it was because you didn't have a race on the schedule going into the 10 mile. And so you wanted some competition level feel race day type feel that you can go into 
and gain some confidence from going into that. Yeah, get a race effort in, like push your body past the point that you can in a workout because for for some reason psychologically you can always go harder in like a situation where you're like supposed to run with everything. And do you remember what you ran? Uh, eight forty four. And pretty even split. At altitude. At altitude. 5,400 <laughs> feet here in Boulder. Yeah. So it was a PR for two miles by six mm-hmm. seconds. You had help for about a mile of it. Willie was alternating laps Alternating with you. 400s, yeah. You so. had uh, Decca Band Girl. Oh, man. Great Heisman stiff arm into the tuba or whatever the hell it was. As Noah's <laughs> doing this two-mile time trial on the track, the high school band was setting up for practice, and they started putting the, the bandstand in lane one and two. Yeah. And we had teammates screaming. Not today. Not, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Noah, Noah, the tuba girl almost almost took out Noah. Yeah, we had to apologize to the coaches after that, and we haven't been really back to the track since. Yeah. <laughs> But you showed your football training from really like really incredible instincts, especially in that pain state. Your lateral quickness was uh, impeccable. Incredible. On that day. It was absolutely incredible without breaking stride. No, yeah, yeah. Just and if anything, I got faster. So I think that's what <laughs> led the indicator of at the ten mile champs when you jetted out from the field and put in a surge. Yeah, and the same like a lot of these races again like come down like I talked about earlier like running ten hard minutes. Like you're almost, you're never gonna get to last two miles in a race of this caliber and be alone unless you're superhuman. So it's like for me, I'm probably not gonna out sprint a whole lot of people over the last couple hundred. So if I can like really grind out ten minutes and like push someone really hard for two miles, like I feel like I don't know, just like that's almost my best chance to win a lot of these races. One one final thought before we cut out here because you and I are both pretty hungry and we're yeah. going to go to dinner when you look at now from competing domestically to competing internationally and well, you're still compete, competing domestically against international yeah college. but like there's <laughs> yeah. we we hope yeah. that there comes a point where you're able to go over to europe whether it be on the track or on the road to be able to compete in one of those bigger events whether on a u.s national team or at some of those international type races so when you're competing against some of those international competitors the the racing is different Mm -hmm. it's it's not just an ability it's when we're talking time trials a lot of times people think of you're running behind a pacer and you're clicking off splits and to a certain extent it is but when you're racing it's recognizing surgeries dealing with surgeries it becomes instinctual yeah and that's something that you've like i said in the past have done a pretty good job of when you're racing good kenyans and you're watching a surge how is there any thought process or is it just you see it you react yeah um i i I think now i'm like learning i'm like learning to deal with surges still and i still feel like in a lot of these races like some of my competitors like view me as like the new kid on the block and so like i've had like actual conversations in races with competitors who like they see me surge and they'll say no it don't surge or it's too early to surge this has happened three like i'm thinking of three different times well, Diego told me this last week, and at 5K, he told you to lay off. And yeah. then he said at 5K, he turned to you and said, and go just get that. Go. He said, <laughs> go get that contract. Exactly. And so, yeah, that's exactly – that's one of those times. Like, Brian Schrader told it to me in the 10-mile. Someone else told it to me in the 10-mile in that same race, I think. And so, like, part of it is, like, recognizing when a surge is happening and, like, knowing that it's nothing. Um, like, Sam will do this. Like, he'll get to the front, and he will just run hard for 50 meters – but we're at like mile one of a 10K and he'll come back, you know? But the other part of it is realizing when that move is serious or being the one who actually executes that move 
with the intent of one, like intimidating competition, or two, testing them to see if they broke. Broke, and so that, that at the ten mile, that's what I was doing in the last few miles. Like, like I was constantly like surging to see like who in the field was still feeling good, and eventually it like it became pretty clear that it was Tim Ritchie and Sam Chalanga. And so it's like, okay, like I've been surging, kept surging a little more, maybe back off a little bit, and then it's just Sam. And he eventually like blew my doors off. But so some of that is like is realizing when it's a test and realizing when it's just someone stretching their legs. Because I think that happens too. What about guys that you've competed against, let's say over the last six to eight months because it's a different level of competition, or guys that you've observed over those last six to eight months that you really respect how they race? Yeah. Um, like, dude, Callum Hawkins is my guy right now. Just, like, seeing him just pushing from the front and, like, throwing everything at his competitors. And he's made, like, you know, I've had a good progression. He has had an incredible progression to be running 60 flats against Olympic medalists. Yeah, have know? you watched the replay of the New York half? Not yet. Throwing um, blows at the front all yeah, the way to that last mile. I, I think uh, I think Chris Loss from out a really good recap that I read that was yeah just about him up there trading and it was the same thing at the cross country race in Edinburgh like he was just up there just trying to break everybody and to me like that's the most honorable way of racing both of those races that I mentioned he lost he finished second and so we can argue about is that the best tactic but sometimes I like don't even care I'm like this is a guy who is just running in the most honorable way possible and eventually he's gonna win you know, and who knows? I don't know anything about his sprinting speed. Well, and you have to be smart about when it's when it's appropriate a time to do that. He wasn't doing that at the Olympics, yeah. And so he knew the level of the competition he was up against. And you have to know yourself, like when can I throw in these surges? Yeah. Like, can I run hard for five k? Can I run hard for eight k? Can I run hard for three k? Yeah, just like pushing, being able to push from the front, like Callum Hawkins does, uh, like Morgan Pearson does it in a lot of his mm-hmm. races. He'll get to the front and just churn. Like that's a runner that like. You know, I aspire to be like someone who can get up there and like people know that he's serious when he gets to the front and that like I'm giving myself like a legitimate shot to win. Now, how about when you do move up to the marathon distance, someone that you recognize their style of racing that would be something that you do want to try to emulate? I mean, if I ever get into a marathon with Jared Ward, like I'm just going to stick in his pocket because like if, if I think I'm at the fitness level, because this is a guy who is so consistent like he, he like his, trust his plan it, exactly trust his plan he knows his pace like what he ran in la at the trials was just like textbook marathoning like he made the team not just because he was one of the best runners in the field because he was the smartest runner in the field i feel like des is pretty similar des on the women's side is yeah. that same that same assassin like she'll be She'll be a minute off the off the lead, but she's churning, 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 and all of a sudden she's gaining, gaining, gaining. You know, mm-hmm. and um, part of that, a lot of that comes down to timing. But those are, yeah, the marathon's a little bit different, but um, because you probably don't want to be throwing surges at people at six miles into a marathon. <laughs> you know? Now, one one final question for me, from me to you. I know the answer to this, but as it relates to your progression. We don't go into periodized plan. I was telling people that like everything at the post-collegiate level kind of blends together. Like there's no compartmentalized seasons. 
it's there's always a race if you get hurt or you get sick you just move on to the next thing yeah and same thing with i don't consider us a high mileage program or a low mileage program we progress people appropriately based on what they've been able to handle up to this point yeah up to this point you've been a relatively low mileage athlete what what was your max mile mileage in college what's been your max mileage now as a post-collegiate and how many how long did it take you to get there i guess would be a good progression i'd say like my well just like go back to high school because that will give some that'll give some insight context into college like i think in high school i probably maxed out at like 35 40 miles a week in my training log goes back to high school so i could actually check this but 35 40 but that was just in my last year and a half um, then college, like every year, like it seemed like I had a new number to train at. So like my freshman year, I was running 50 with like the upper end of 60. Uh, my sophomore year, I was running like 55 with the op- upper end of 65. I, I never really ran more than 70 miles a week in college. Like if I strung together like a few 70 mile weeks during cross country in college, like, uh, that was, that was big time. And now we train, we train at about 80 so far. So like I've really progressed from like, 40 to 80 and you didn't touch 80 until this fall yeah so it's like taken 10 years to go <laughs> to go from yep. 40 to 80 with it which is like a real you know glacial move um have you noticed a difference in terms of i guess fatigue going from 70 to 80 like in daily training yeah Eh, no. It's minimal not right? really but like at the same time like when we're on these like six week build-ups like between races it's like we get to 80 at like week four or three whatever and then i have like one or two weeks of like feeling really good and then like everything hits me and then i feel really bad and then all of a sudden i come out of it like superhuman well and your your <laughs> breaks aren't really like breaks yeah it's exactly like it's you're yeah. still running so we get back up to mileage quickly um but like before new york i strained together three weeks at 80 yeah i think i what i think i emphasized was over the past year prior to this last from when i started coaching you to this past november i think you had maybe a total of like eight to ten weeks under 70 like everything else was 70 with a couple 80s yeah so just like building consistently but then we all we were like not only running consistent like mileage of like mods that i've been comfortable at before it's like we're also pushing the upper threshold of where it goes but only for like a few weeks at a time it's not like i'm doing like 10 weeks at 80 you know it's like in these like shorter, four or five it's like four or five and yeah. then we race and then we go back and maybe we'll try i don't I haven't seen the plan but i imagine it'll go up to like 85 90 over the course of the next however many months or whatever yeah so it's like it's very slow like progression upward and i think i've been handling i've been handling it fine yeah, but you've you've also like you said have structured yourself outside of it to make sure that you're handling it fine. Yeah, exactly. Like, could I have handled like consistent eighty miles a week in college? Or God, I didn't even go to class in college. I like barely went to class. I don't even know what I was doing yeah. in college. Like, Probably I, not some good things. No, it's like well, I should have been running a hundred miles a week and just <laughs> slaying in college. But hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could have been somebody. Yeah, in college. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to head to dinner. Nice job this past weekend. A couple races coming up in the next few months, and we look forward to seeing what you can do. Yep, thanks. Bye. Bye.